Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my conversation with Bill Shutt on Pump. First, I wanted to remind you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the science and medicine category for episode number 112 with Dr. Ewan Angus Ashley on The Genome Odyssey. This is Ewan Ashley, author of The Genome Odyssey, Medical Mysteries and the Incredible Quest to Solve Them. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Bill Shutt is a zoologist and author, including the bestseller Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History. His newest book is titled Pump, A Natural History of the Heart. Bill, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Really good, Trey. How are you? Doing great, thank you. So what was your goal with Pump? Uh, what was my goal? Um, well, I'd written uh, my two previous books. One of them had been on blood-feeding creatures, and the other one had been on uh, on cannibalism in the animal kingdom. And so I thought I was going to do something really weird after that, and I had a list of things that I wanted to do. And my agent, Jillian McKenzie, and my editor at Algonquin um, – pitched me to do something a little bit more mainstream. And so when the heart, when I looked at the heart on that list that they gave me, I didn't think that there was going to be enough there for me to um, to riff on, uh, considering how popular the topic is and how many experts have written books on it before. You know, I'm a zoologist, and, and, and what I wanted to do was move through the animal kingdom, not an encyclopedia form, um, but, but look at, at, at neat hearts, neat circulatory systems, um, and then move into history. And, and when I started to do the research on this, I found out that there were these really cool stories. And not only that, but a lot of the animal stuff that I ran into had relevance with regard to human medicine. So that was really the, the, the cherry on top. And so I'm, I'm trying to, um, I tried to write a book that was accessible to, to non-scientists. I don't use a lot of jargon. I try to be as entertaining as possible. I'll use uh, humor, uh, you, know, you know, where, where, uh, where um, where allowable, uh, you know, if you're writing a book about cannibalism, it's a little bit tough to do, but, you, you know, you pick your spots. So, um, yeah, and I wanted to talk about the history of, as, as well, and, and, and especially some of the things that are upcoming in, uh, with regard to, to cardiac medicine. And as I said, many of them tied right in, back into the animal kingdom. Well, I think you did a great job of balancing all of that out with pump. And generally speaking, for most creatures, what is the purpose of the heart? Okay, so the the heart is a is. I mean, if you, if you talk to a cardiac surgeon, he's he's going to look at something uh, in, uh, in in an insects or in an earthworm, and and he's not going to consider that to be sort of a card carrying heart. But but I consider it to be a muscular pump that. That, 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 that sends a liquid through the circulatory system, a series of tubes, in order to provide an organism with oxygen and carry away carbon dioxide and provide and carry in nutrients and carry away the waste products that, that cells produce. Um, so when you look across the animal kingdom, when you look at the invertebrates, the animals with no backbones, uh, there, there's a, a, a wide variety of, of structures that do this. And, 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 you know, and they range from the, the aortic arches of an earthworm to the multiple strange little pumping structures found in insects. And, and, and we think that there are so many different types in the invertebrates because they evolved so many times. When you look at the backboned animals, the vertebrates, whether you're looking at fish or amphibians or reptiles or birds or mammals, there's a real similarity here, you know, and, and you wouldn't think so looking at something like a fish compared to a human. But we think that this is because all of these structures evolved from a common ancestor. So there's a, there's a tremendous amount of, of similarity between, between all of the vertebrates, which allows scientists to go in and look at the things that are that that might be medically applicable to humans, and and actually follow up on that. And and that's you know I saw a lot of that, and I wasn't expecting it. But when I started to run into those types of things, that that really um, you know that really got me going as far as the, my interest in, in in what I was writing. Why did you visit Canada to see the heart of a blue whale up close, and just how big was that? Well, that 
That story was, uh, I used that in the prologue in the first chapter because it, it, it turned out to be such an interesting, uh, interesting tale. And, and I work at the American Museum of Natural History and I've got friends in, in other museums. And, and one of them is, uh, some of my friends work at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto. And I'd heard about this blue whale heart that they had preserved. And, and I went up there and, and basically learned the story of how they obtained it. In 2014, nine blue whales, and that's a considerable number, um, perished on the ice in, off the coast of Newfoundland. And, and not a whole lot had been known up till then about the organs that blue whales have. And the reason being is because when they die, they sink. So back in the whaling days, you know, these were not the right whales. The right whales were the whales that when you threw a harpoon in them and they die, they floated. Um, in the, the, the wrong whales, I guess you would consider the blue whales is because not only were they fast, but when you killed them, they sank. So this was an opportunity that, that these researchers had never gotten before. They had been getting all of these questions. What's the largest heart in the world? Well, since the blue whale is the largest creature that ever lived, it's got to be the blue whale heart. Uh, how big is it? Uh, uh, the size of a sedan, but they really didn't know that <laughs> until they were able to go up. They, but they brought construction equipment in a sense. They had literally four guys inside this whale clipping the heart uh, out and then pushing it through the the ribs. And when they got it out, they they realized that there was some real strange stuff going on. Things that they had not that that they hadn't suspected. When I looked at the pictures of this thing sitting on a you know, in this little town where this 90 tons of, of stinky dead flesh washed up, when they got the heart out, it didn't look like a heart that you might see in a butcher shop or someplace. It, it, it looked like, to me, it looked like a, a 400 pound soup dumpling. It was completely collapsed hmm. and it was a lot smaller than they thought it was going to be. You know, for, so for example, if, if you'd have had a 90 ton hummingbird, laying there next to this blue whale. And yeah, that's absurd. But if you'd opened this humming, this enormous hummingbird up, it would have a heart that was eight times larger than the blue whale heart. And we think this is because it, hummingbirds beat their wings 80 times per second. And they've got a completely crazy heart rate. 1,200, 1,300 times per minute, beats per minute is, is a hummingbird heart rate to get the blood up to those um, wing muscles. And the only other way to get blood to these muscles, because we're, you're probably maxed out at 1300 beats per minute. The only other way to get blood to those muscles is that enlarge the size of your heart. So, you know, a heart in something that is that that has a real high metabolic rate, like a like a, a hummingbird or, or a shrew, a little mousy guy, is going to be tremendously larger um, than than something like a blue whale whose heart beats normally maybe 12, 15 times per minute. Um, and then when they do these deep dives that they do, maybe two or three times per minute. And that's what the, that's why we think that, they, that they've got a heart that collapses uh, and looks like a soup dumpling when you pull it out uh, because it's under such tremendous pressure. And since it's only beating two or three times per minute, uh, the heart just collapses under the pressure of a deep dive. So there were all of these neat things that they learned about the heart, you know, it took five years to plastinate it, to send it over. They sent it over to Germany and the same guys who did the bodies exhibit. I don't know. Are you familiar with that? That's, uh, you know, you'll see there, there are these exhibitions where you see this like a model of, uh, of a guy dribbling a basketball on. He's got no skin and he's made of plastic. And, huh. and these are, yeah, these are, there were originally, these were humans that they plastinated. They've in a sense turned them into silicone. Um, and so this was the biggest project that these guys in, in Germany had, had ever undertaken. And so here's this like 400 pound heart mounted and color coded. And it was absolutely stunning. And, you know, for your listeners, they can go see it now. There's a new exhi exhibit at the ROM that'll be open until March about whales. And, and they've hauled this thing back out to display it. But there was so much about that heart that they didn't know. And I just thought that was appropriate. You know, you figure mammal heart. We must know about it. In reality, you know, there were blood vessels that were coming off this thing that they still don't know what they are. Wow, that's wild, uh, especially for a creature that we've known about for so long. But then again, when you mentioned that when these whales die, they sink to the bottom of the ocean. I guess it makes sense that uh, you're not necessarily going to butcher one just to do scientific experiments. Now, you also spent some time 
on the horseshoe crab and its circulatory system. Horseshoe crabs have open circulatory systems. Humans and about 50,000 species of fish, amphibians, reptiles, and birds have closed circuitry systems, uh, circulatory systems. What's the difference here? In an open circulatory system, just think of it this way. The, uh, the, when the blood is pumped, well, let me, let me reverse. You start with the closed circulatory system. The blood stays in the heart and circulatory system, never leaves it, right? In an open circulatory system, something like an insect might have or, or a lot of invertebrates, the blood gets pumped out. And instead of staying in the blood vessels, it gets dumped into these large sinuses called hemocoeles. And those sinuses are, are surrounded by tissue. And the tissue is, in a sense, bathed by the blood that fills that sinus, and then it moves on under low pressure and heads back to the heart. But I found horseshoe crabs fascinating for, for reasons that I didn't initially think uh, that, that I was going to be exploring. You know, I first looked at these as a, you know, I was going to write this snarky chapter about the, the key differences between, uh, between a lot of invertebrate hearts and invertebrate hearts is, is where the stimulus comes from to make the heart beat. Now, we've all heard of pacemakers, right? And, and we have a heart who's the, where the electrical signal that passes through the heart and in the wake of that signal, the, the heart muscle contracts, right? That's what we have. A lot of animals, including horseshoe crabs, don't have that. They have nerves on the outside of their heart that send the signal into the heart. So I was going to write this kind of snarky chapter where, you know, this is the reason why you don't see Aztec movies with Aztec priests ripping out the hearts of, of horseshoe crabs, because as soon as you pulled it out of the horseshoe crab's body, the, the heart would stop beating. And yes, yeah, so, so that was ridiculous. But what I found out when I did the work on these guys and started to explore them was that they've been around for half a billion years. This is, you know, we throw around this term living fossil and, and we, we really overuse it. But here are creatures that half a billion years ago, uh, the horseshoe crab fossils that look like a horseshoe crab now. So they've been through all of these extinctions and, and they're still here, but now they're endangered. And so I wanted to explore why that was so. And, you know, initially a hundred years ago, it was because, you know, you know, in the spring and in the, in the early summer, they come in in massive numbers from the, from the depths into the shallows. And this is where you see them on beaches. And that's when they're collected. And they were initially collected to use as fertilizer. And, and when we got past that, they were being used as bait by primarily by eel fishermen and whelk fishermen. And, and so that really put a dent on their populations. But in the 1960s, researchers figured out that there was something in their blood, which is blue. When I go into that uh, in, in, in pump, there was something in their blood that when it came into contact with endotoxin, um, it, it gives a reaction. It, called, it forms a clot. And, and endotoxin is a, is, a, is, a, is a substance that is produced by certain bacteria called gram-negative bacteria. So for example, um, it, it's found in their cell membrane. And so it usually doesn't hurt people, but it, it becomes problematic when you sterilize something like let's say uh, catheters before you package them or uh, you know, a surgical room or, 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 or a batch of drugs. When you sterilize that, th that, those conditions and you kill those bacteria, it blows those bacteria apart and those pieces of the cell membrane of the bacteria, that's the endotoxin. And if it gets into your body, a human body, it can kill you. And so this substance is used to, to, to put a test together to detect endotoxin. And so now you have companies that on an industrial scale collect horseshoe crabs, usually right before they mate, hang them up, uh, drain their blood with cannula, uh, and you know, sticking needle and in, right into their heart, drain it until it stops coming out. They usually lose about forty percent of their blood in a in, in one of these um, sessions, uh, and then and then return the horseshoe crab by law to to the water. Now, meanwhile, they've been out of the water for seventy two hours. They're not kept chilled, and a lot of them die. Um, so, so this is that's this is not to say that that this that that the test derived from their blood is not important and hasn't saved many, many lives because it has. But there are now new tests that don't use horseshoe crabs that can do the same thing. So it sort of reminded me of, you know, in the old days, they used to use rabbits for all of these drug tests. They don't do that anymore. And we were all set to use that. And, and, and drug companies were starting to use it. And then COVID hit. 
and all of these places that were that where it is so important, like hospitals, to make sure that the conditions are sterile and to make sure that there's no endotoxin present, fell back on the on, on the standard of uh, the companies that were there previously, and and so the the new tests, which had not been out very long, got pushed to the back burner. So I mean, so hopefully once we get COVID under control, we'll be able to move on to um to to sort of putting the uh, putting this blood-based test to rest. Why do squids and octopuses have three hearts? Well, they're really active. First of all, so they're invertebrates. They don't have a backbone. And we think that they're active lifestyles. uh, And they, you know, in order to be that active, to be the active predators that they are, they needed to to move efficiently and move quickly, especially squid. So they literally have, instead of one pump, pumping blood around there. And they've got a closed circulatory system. They're invertebrates with closed circulatory systems, but they have two heart-like structures that, that, that pump blood that's returning to the, from the body. And it's been depleted in ox- of oxygen and, and nutrients that uh, those two pumps pump blood to the gills. Uh, and then once the blood is oxygenated by the gills, um, then it is pumped to the body by a third heart. So we think that it's just a, a way for them to, to efficiently move a lot of blood around quickly uh, in order to, to, to sort of um, allow them to have the, the high metabolic um, lifestyles that they have and high-speed predator lifestyles. Why do giraffes not fall over from a blood rush to the brain when they bend down to drink water? Mainly because they have valves. So, so if you think about it, what what you know, it's difficult for, for venous blood to get back to the, uh, to the heart. That's why we have, you know, swelling of the feet, for example, um, is, is blood, uh, is liquid leaves the, the, the blood vessels and, and, and accumulates that's edema. Right. So, so when, I, when, I, if you think about it, when our giraffe lowers its head to drink, the, the blood is being pumped to begin with at a tremendously high pressure, tremendously high pressure. So our blood pressures may be what 120 over 80, which means that 120 part is when 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 the heart contracts, and the 80 is when the heart is relaxing. That's systolic over diastolic. 280 over 180 for uh, for for giraffes with a, with a, a heart that weighs about 20 pounds. It's about two feet in diameter. So if you add um, if you add um, that if you if you add gravity to that 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 blood being pumped to the to the brain when when the, when the animal has its head up in the air, this is under tremendous pressure, and and so you've got to sort of dampen that pressure, lower it, so it enters into these capillary beds, so that when the the blood gets up into the up into the up into the brain, it doesn't blow out the capillaries under tremendously high pressure. Now, when the animal dips its head to drink, right. How do you get that blood under low pressure now back to the heart? And there are valves in the jugular veins that return the venous blood to the heart that prevent the blood. Once it's past these valves, and there are usually seven of them or so in each jugular vein, it can't back down and head back towards the head again. So they've got all of these adaptations for the fact that they're very, very tall. You know, they've got, you know, they were the ones who invented you know, we wear pressure socks so that if you have high blood pressure, you don't, uh, you know, you don't get a, f- a fluid accumulation in your feet. This edema that I mentioned before mm-hmm. it will, well, giraffes are doing the same thing because they're dealing with, with their high blood pressure plus gravity and the blood, the liquid part of the blood wants to leave the circulatory system and to, and to collect in places where it's not supposed to. If this was someone with a high blood pressure, it might be swelling of the ankles, this edema. How do crocodile hearts differ from other reptiles? Um, well, I mean, crocodile hearts are, the, the, the thing about, about most reptiles is that they have a three-chambered heart. And, and so they have one ventricle, the pumping chamber, and two atria. And so there was a bit of mixing between oxygenated and deoxygenated blood. And that makes their hearts a bit less efficient. They work fine for those animals, um, but but there is some mixing of the oxygenated and deoxygenated blood. 
looking at alligators, crocodiles, also birds and mammals, uh, there's a complete separation of, of the venous and arterial blood. So the right side of the heart and the left side of the heart are literally two separate pumps. And you see that in the it, sort of surprisingly uh, in, um, in the crocodilians. So that's crocodiles, alligators, gharials, things like that. Your zoology expertise includes bats. Much of your 30-year career has focused on Austin's favorite creature. I'm here in Austin, Texas right now. Now, bats hibernate. What happens to their hearts when they're sleeping through winter, especially considering that they're hanging upside down to boot? Yeah, they, they, first of all, we're having our um, a national and international bat research meeting in Austin next August, which we're all looking forward to since... Uh, our last two meetings have gotten canceled because of COVID. Um, but yeah, Austin is a great place to uh, to see bats and, and to learn about them, mostly because of places like Bat Conservation International, uh, who, who's headquartered there. And, then uh, also, the, uh, and also the Mexican uh, white-tailed bats that are under the South Congress Bridge that have oh, yeah. a show at uh, dusk every night. Yeah, the free-tailed bats, millions of them. A, a spectacular sight if you, for any of your, your listeners who've not seen it. Well, but... But bats, most bats are insectivores, right? And um, and so in many places, there are no insects in, out in the middle of the winter. So you're going to have to cope with the fact that there's no food, especially bats up here in the north. Um, and so one way to do that, one of what I've learned were several different ways that animals cope with um, with cold conditions and, and conditions where where you're not able to get get at the natural resources like, like food um, is to slow down your metabolism. And so they are they 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 literally are able to and, and we don't know the precise mechanism here, slow their metabolism down. They do not freeze. They're not frozen. They often wake up in the middle of the, uh, of the winter. They have storage of, uh, they've got storehouses of, of fat that they're able to burn slowly over the entire winter, um, which, is, which makes it important not to disturb them while they're hibernating or any hibernating animal because they're on a strict energy budget, nutrient budget. And if you wake them up, that costs energy. You know, and, it, and so if they're awake and they're not able to find uh, find food, uh, then then they have then they may starve to death before temperatures warm up, insects come out uh, and, and they wake up. But if you but if you're a bat that lives in the tropics, you're not you know, you're not hibernating. You may go into torpor because of the heat. Same kind of thing. Slow your metabolic rate down. But um, that, that, that's it is it, it's it's kind of a common occurrence in 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 mammals uh, to to deal with the cold by, by slowing down your metabolic rate. And there are some really strange animals that allow themselves to be com- completely frozen. And that to me was, you know, that was something I'd never heard of. These woodland frogs uh, that, that, are, that, that literally turn themselves into a frog sickle. So everything freezes, they're frozen solid. And, you know, if that happened to you or me or the bats that we're talking about, that ice, those ice crystals that would form would tear up the tissue uh, in your body. Um, so how do you prevent that? You, th- they release a substance that, that allows the, the water to leave their tissues where it would do damage if it froze and to, and to accumulate in places like their abdominal cavity where it turns into like a slush. So, so I've talked to this uh, researcher and he says, you know, if you, if you were to open up one of these, one of these frogs, it would look like a, you know, it would, it would look like a slurpee inside. Or, or a slushy, hmm. um, because it's in a sense sequestered that all of the water um, in places where when it freezes, it won't do damage. So there's another way to, to cope with the cold. Then you've got Antarctic ice fish who have antifreeze in their blood, which is insanity. Hmm. Uh, That's fascinating. So, yeah, so, but, so what you're telling yeah. me, though, is that Ted Williams attempts to cryogenically freeze his head probably will not come to fruition in a 50 years. Yeah, for me, it was Dis- Walt Disney when I was a kid. It, um, when Walt Disney died of, uh, of cancer, um, the, the word was that they had cryogenically, you know, they had frozen his body and it was in some likely. And, 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 um, and cryogenics is a field that is pretty, that, that has slowed down. Um, they're, they're, you know, the extent of it is probably to try to do everything you can to preserve organs that are being transplanted. To, 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 if you've got to move them across the country, for example. Um, but as far as freezing someone and then, th- and then, uh, you know, thawing them out after you've 
discovered how to cope with that that disease. Uh, I don't think there's any of that research going on. All right. We spent the first half of our conversation talking about animal hearts, and now we'll talk about the animals that we are. We'll talk about the human heart for the second half of things. Normal human blood pressure is around 110 over 80. What do these numbers mean, Bill? Um, all right. So the, the top number, the 110, is called the systolic blood pressure, and that is the pressure that develops when the when, when the heart is contracting and expelling blood from the heart, okay? Then the heart relaxes and fills. At that point, when, it, when those muscles that make up the heart relax or in the vessels just outside the heart, that's the diastolic pressure, so it's lower. And what does the heart have to do with our fight or flight response? What's happening with the heart in those fight or flight moments? Well, in, well, all right, so that's part of the autonomic nervous system. The, the, your fight or flight r- response, the opposite of that is the rest and repose response, which is kind of like digest your Cheerios already. There's nothing here that's very scary. Um, the, the fight or flight response is if, is if some, there's some real or imagined threat, like you're in front of a thousand people uh, giving a, a lecture and, and uh, you know someone tells you that your fly is open or something like that. Uh, so, so, so now you have this, this freak out response and it could be, I don't know, you know, it could be more serious. A bear breaks into the room or something. So, so now that fight or flight part of your autonomic nervous system, which you have no control over, that's the autonomic part. Um, you don't have to tell your, your, uh, your, your heart rate to increase or your blood pressure to increase or your, or, or your pupils to dilate or your respiratory rate to increase to try to get you to survive this trauma that's taking place. Um, so of course it has an effect on the heart with regard to generation of, uh, you know, heartbeat goes up, blood pressure goes up. Uh, the problem is, is, uh, and as, as I discuss in the book, when, um, when, when, when that doesn't shut down and, and, and the signal to do all those things, to increase heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate, uh, are hormones that are released that the, the, the autonomic nervous system, the, the sympathetic division, the fight or flight division causes the release of, of, of stress hormones. And that's what causes these responses. Okay. So it says, and it also says divert blood from your d- digestive tract. We don't care about digesting your Cheerios right now. We've got to get blood to, you know, to your brain and to your leg muscles so you can run away from the bear. Um, the problem is, is that, and, and Japanese researchers figured this out in, in, in about 2009 were um, a, about 30 women showed up in, in, in hospitals complaining of chest pains and, and dizziness, like they were having heart attacks. And, and when they did the workup on them, they found that no blockage of the coronary arteries, no, uh, no, no damage to the heart. And, but what all of these women shared, and most of these were postmenopausal women, is that, that 90% of them had experienced a traumatic, something really horrible had happened uh, recently. And they were, um, uh, so, so, so they had lost loved ones or they lost their homes or they lost their jobs. And, and, you, and, and so those are stressful conditions when stress hormones are, are, are released and you've got this fight or flight response. Now, normally that shuts down after the stress goes away. Um, in these cases, they think it didn't. So you have this prolonged release of stress hormones. And so they called it Takatsubo syndrome, which, you know, I was reminded of this because of the octopus that you mentioned. And, and Takatsubo is a, are the little octopus pots that they use to catch oct- octopuses, octopus fishermen. And when they did a, a ventriculogram, they took a picture of these, of these ladies' hearts. The, their, their left ventricle, remind, the shape of the ventricle, short sort of rounded uh, shape reminded them of these octopus traps, these Takatsubo. We now, and, and so that, that's where Takatsubo syndrome came from. Um, and it, it, you know, this, this sort of um, un, so uncontrolled release of stress hormones leading to things like spasm of the coronary arteries. They, they couldn't find clots, right? Because if, if you just picture taking your hand and squeezing it on a, a water balloon and, and you're compressing that water, that's a spasm. Okay. And, and so, so there was no blockage, but the stress hormones were causing spasms. Now, the good news is that, 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 that this goes away in three to six months. And in the West, we don't call it Takatsubo syndrome. We call it uh, broken heart syndrome. So there is a connection between the heart and, and mind. 
it's just very different than the one that that you know that the the ancient Egyptians came up with, you know, fifteen hundred BC when when they thought that the heart was uh, was the seat of emotion and <laughs> and, and intellect. You know, well, and that's something that lasted until the 1700s, unfortunately. Yeah, you did take an interesting and amusing look at the history of medicine specific to the heart and the circulatory system. For instance, Hippocrates is known as the father of medicine. How scientific were his medicinal practices? Well, he got a lot wrong. And, and he, you know, they weren't doing, they weren't, they were not dissecting humans. The Greeks did not believe in, you know, first of all, they believed in that if you were working on a, a corpse, that they believed that, that that corpses were had this sort of uh, polluting quality that, that that you were not supposed to be touching them, and they didn't like to cut skin either, except if they were you know in battle. Um, so, but a lot of what uh, about a lot of what the Greek researchers and physicians um, followed, uh, they gleaned that from the ancient Egyptians because they they held ancient. Egyptian medicine information in high esteem. And it was the Egyptians who, who were the ones who said, okay, well, the heart is the center of the body. The heart is, uh, is tied into, um, into um, uh, intellect and, and, and memory and, and, and emotions. Oh, and, and by the way, uh, there are two complete circulatory systems. Uh, those arteries that they carry air um, and the veins carry blood. So they passed that on to the Greeks uh, and the Greeks um, as I said, that they really held that information in high esteem. They passed it on to the Romans. The Romans, uh, you know, the, I tell the story of Galen, who was a physician in the, in the, in the second century, a Roman uh, physician, and he wrote a lot. <laughs> so the, he, he and his followers probably wrote three million words, and, and he got a lot wrong. And because he picked it up from the Greeks who had picked it up from the ancient Egyptians. So he believed in things like the four humors, blood, and, and that, that in order to, to keep a person healthy mentally and physically, you had to balance these four humors, blood, black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm. And, and so this, is, this led to them bleeding you. If you had a fever or you looked at, or you were flushed, they would bleed you to sort of balance that, those humors. And this stuff stuck around for way too long. Reason being, when Rome fell, Galen's works were not immediately translated into Latin, which had become the, the, um, the language of scholarship in the West. And so they sat. And when Galen's works were finally translated, they were translated by Syrian Christians into Arabic. And they sort of, and, and, and we believe that Galen was a monotheist. We don't think he was a Christian, but we think he was a monotheist. And when, the, when these Syrian Christians did the translation, they put their sort of Christian take on Galen's already mistaken writings. But the church, in the, and, and, when, and when, that, when those Arabic translations finally got translated into Latin, then they really um, appealed to the uh, to people in the West who were uh, who were in the church, so they looked at this and said, "This stuff is really good." And they they basically declared Galen's work, which had been now mistranslated twice, uh, to be divinely inspired. And you couldn't do anything except follow what Galen said, and and much of what he said was wrong. And this did not go away until 16th century. So for 1500 years. For all intents and purposes, in the West, medical research, any type of advances came to a dead standstill because of this lockstep adherence uh, to Galen's writing. Was Galen partially responsible for Napoleon Bonaparte's chief army surgeon being so in love with leeches with pretty much everything he did medically? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, it, exactly. I mean, that was all part of it. Once, you know, the, initially they would bleed you just by, you know, they'd have all of these kind of cool instruments that they would cut you or you'd stick your finger in it and it would slice you with this little razor thing. And then you would bleed into a bowl and they would measure it. But then they found that, that they could, that they could, um, that they could bleed you more efficiently by putting uh, leeches on you. So, so instead of, uh, you know, take two aspirin and call me in the morning, it was put uh, 300 leeches on your leg and then, um, <laughs> You know, uh, and then go home. Um, can I take so, the can I take the aspirin option, please? Yeah, right. So, so um, you know, and uh, th this carried on for way too long. That they bled, 
you know, they bled George Washington. He, he had a the night that the the day before George Washington died, he he had a a throat infection, and they they drained forty percent of his blood, uh, and 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 he wound up dying the next day, and probably and probably because of one of the key things was uh, you know hemorrhagic shock from losing so much blood. So when I when I looked into that, I went to sort of the original letters about you know, and I'm thinking, well, you know, that this is one of the most famous people in the world. They they had an inquiry after he died to figure out you know if if he had been treated medically in the correct way. And so I'm thinking to myself, oh, all right, well, here's where they nail these guys that screwed up so bad. <laughs> but but I'm reading this and it says. Well, you know, they, they did mess up. They should have bled him closer to his tonsils. And then, <laughs> and then they should have, and they should have wrapped uh, bags of salt around his feet. And I'm thinking to myself, I, this was, these were not screw ups. These were these were the top medical people at the time. And this is what they were taught was the thing to do. And if it was 100 years later, if it was 17, if, if it wasn't 1799, if it was 1899, they would have bled him. But they would have done it with leeches. That'd be the only difference. So it just took a real long time for us to figure things out like 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 how the heart and circulatory system work. Well, I mean, uh, people, but it, people were being injected with milk as recently as 150 years ago. Why in the world was this happening? Yeah, well, this is if, if, some of the initial uh, attempts at um, at um, at transfusions were really strange. And I covered these. So, so see, the idea being that if, if you were running around and, and acting uh, acting crazy and, and setting fire to houses and, you know, and, and beating people and that they would take you and, and, and think that, all right, well, we got to mellow this guy out and they would transfuse blood of, of, of a lamb into you in order to sort of like mellow you out. Now, uh, yeah, well, these people got mellowed out in a hurry, but it was probably because their kidneys went into some type of shock. <laughs> um, and so that's going to put a crimp on your day if you're running around setting fires and starting fights. If they transfuse sheep blood into you, they did the same thing with, you know, then they then they used milk because they were under the mistaken impression that the little fat droplets. We don't see this nowadays um, in milk were actually uh, on the w- way to becoming uh, blood cells. So that, that so 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 milk was transfused into into people. Ale was transfused. Uh, into folks. Um, but when you think about the alternative, it, not only would it be difficult to transfuse blood from another person into, uh, in, into a, from a donor to a recipient because of the clotting, but they knew nothing about blood types. You know, that didn't come around until the, 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 the 20th century. Carl Landsteiner didn't figure out the ABO blood groups with his colleagues until the late 1920s. Every other blood transfusion from human to human up till then was a crapshoot. The stethoscope is one of the most important inventions in the history of the heart. When was it invented, and how much has it evolved? Uh, how much has it evolved since then? Well, the stethoscope was invented in 1816 by a Frenchman by the name of Rene Lanique, and and at that time in 1816 in Paris, they had a, a horrible outbreak of what they were calling consumption. And, and this was because it, this disease appeared to consume uh, the, the victim from, from the inside. We now know that it is tuberculosis and it's caused by a bacterium. But one of the things that takes place in, uh, in, in consumption and in, in tuberculosis, um, and Lenake knew this, was that you could put your ear on a, on a person's chest, a patient's chest, and hear differences because of fluid accumulation in people who were suffering from, from, from consumption, from people who were not. So this became, an, so, so, so listening to, 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 to people, people's chests, osculation, the listening to the body sounds became an important diagnostic tool. But back then, you know, in the 17th century, uh, you had a number of issues with, with putting your head to someone's chest. People, a lot of people were dirty. Uh, there, people had lice, ectoparasites. Um, then there was the whole idea of how uncouth it is for this male to be putting his ear against the breast of a, of a, of a woman. So he was supposedly walking in the park one day and sees these two kids, and they're playing with a, a long stick, like a branch. And one of them has got the end of the stick 
one end of the stick up to his ear and his friend is at the other end and he's tapping the stick. And from that, he apparently got the idea to do this type of, uh, to, to recreate this with a simple tube that he could use to listen to sounds of the chest, sound, heart sounds, lung sounds from a distance. And of course, now we've gotten the, the, the stethoscope um, ha has certainly taken off from a simple tube, but it's still in use um, uh, even today. How important is the invention of defibs? Well, what you're doing is in these instances, you have a, an electrical system in the heart that I sort of described before, where you have a pacemaker that's sending out a signal. It travels along this conduction path, it's called. And in the wake of that electrical signal, that part of the heart where the signal just passes contracts. So that is really the, uh, and, and, and this is tied in, of course, to, the, to our pacemakers. That, that is the system that governs our heartbeat, that causes our, our, our heart to beat at a consistent rate or, or to speed up or to slow down. Now, if there's a problem in that, um, in that conduction system, whether it's the pacemaker or it's somewhere along the path of that signal, this conduction pathway, and that signal is interrupted, uh, then, you can get, uh, then you can get into serious trouble uh, if, if you're that person. So what they're trying to do with a defibrillator is to be, and this is, all of this takes place really rhythmically. It's this beautiful synchronous contraction that takes place because of the way these signals are, are produced in the pacemakers and move along these pads through the heart. And in the wake of it, the heart contracts in this beautifully synchronized way, the atria, then the ventricles, then over and over again. Um, so what you're trying to do with a defibrillator is to, in a sense, restart that electrical conduction. Um, and, and so that's what a defib does. I mean, that when you're defibrillating someone, you're trying to reestablish that, um, that normal rhythm of electrical impulses produced by the pacemaker that move through your heart that allow your heart to contract. Uh, but, but nobody that gets, you know, has a defib that, that's defibrillated, you know, that they don't go wandering off. Now you're going to have to deal with the fact that they probably got some type of serious problem with this conduction system, but it's a way to start the heart back up rather than it um, than stopping because it's not getting that signal. You can think of it almost like as a, as a short circuit in that electrical, in those electrical lines that, mm. uh, that, that are found in the heart. Enlarged hearts can be a very bad thing, but why is the enlarged heart of an athlete usually a good thing? Well, when you're talking about a, a pathogenic enlarged heart, you're, you're, you're generally talking about one part of some of the heart grows, uh, but, the, but for example, the, uh, the, the, the chambers um, don't grow uh, at an equivalent rate. Okay, so the atria and the ventricles. And, and so, so this is problematic. But uh, an athlete whose heart is, uh, who, whose, whose heart is growing because of exercise, everything is growing at, at, at sort of the correct rate, um, the right amount of muscle. The, 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 the heart chambers are, are, are also uh, growing as well. So everything is sort of, uh, that's healthy heart growth. Now, now in my book, what I, what I talked about was the fact that 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 a that a, a researcher by the name of Leslie Leanwind at the U University of Colorado was studying Burmese pythons, which are they're an invasive species in, in in Florida, and there may be up to a million of these things in the Everglades. These were released by pet owners, and there were no predators, and and, and they've gone absolutely bonkers as far as their populations go, and they eat everything, everything. So native populations of animals and birds and whatever have just gone through the floor. But what she found out, and we've all seen pictures of these big snakes, boa constrictors and pythons, um, or, you know, or anacondas, when they eat their meals, they eat, you know, they, don't, they don't take it apart, they, they swallow it whole. So they're eating these giant meals. And what she figured out was that very soon after consuming a large meal, the heart of a Burmese python grows 40% in size. And it's healthy heart growth. It's the type of heart growth that would take place if an athlete were, were training. So what she's trying to do is isolate these compounds that are found in the python's blood 
and and the the end to this would be not to eliminate um, exercise for people, but for for folks who have um who, who have had a heart condition. Let's say they've had a heart attack. Now they want to get you exercising so that you can strengthen your heart. There are some people who are not going to be able to do that because their heart is so damaged they can't exercise. So is there a way now that we can use these compounds found in the in the in the uh, python blood to to produce healthy heart growth in patients who are not able to undergo a, you know, partake in a, a, a normal exercise regime. That's the type of thing. Um, that's the type of thing that I found again and again when I was writing this book. And, and that's what made it so, uh, that, that's what took it past the fact that I'm a zoologist and I, I love you know, looking at, at all sorts of different types of animals. But the applicability of these examples in the animal kingdom, you know, I like to have a dollar for every time somebody came up to me and said something along the lines of, I used to study vampire bats for a living, but how does that keep my grandmother alive for five more years? What, what does it mean to normal people? And, and, and this, in a sense, is a way to, to, to sort of justify that type of zoological research um, because it does have uh, applicability to, to humans. Speaking of the applicability to humans, uh, there's obviously a ton of research going on right now to find that next great thing that can be used to help humans out who are dealing with cardiovascular issues. What excites you most in terms of something that is in the making right now that may hit the market at some point in the next five to 10 years that will really help us out? Um, I, the thing that just popped into my mind was that uh, you know we have a serious problem. You know, the other day we we saw in the news about uh, about pig kidney that was transplanted into to a human and, and successfully worked because they'd used CRISPR technology to edit the genes of that of that pig strain so that we so that the human body would not reject it. Okay, so that's one way to 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 deal with the fact that. Um, that, that, that thousands of people die every year waiting for a donor organ, whether it's kidneys or liver or, or lungs or, or, or heart. Uh, the other way that, um, another way, I should say, that, that researchers are, are looking to deal with the, the problem of not enough donor organs, I, I met with Dr. Harold Ott at, at Harvard, and, and what he's doing is this. The, the, the reason, one of the reasons that, you, that a lot of people die waiting for donor hearts, for example, is because if you were to take just anybody's donor heart, someone dies and you're going to put this heart into someone, they would have a, a their body would reject it because of, you know, you, you've got to match the tissue type. You've got to match the blood and, and if the blood type. And if you don't, you're asking for trouble. Okay. So what, what Dr. Ott envisions is this. So when, when you die, the people, people who say are going to, um, are going to donate their, their, their bodies to science. Well, well now, instead of that, you donate your heart to this facility and they take your heart and they run it through a process where they drip this, um, where where they drip a detergent through it. And that detergent washes away, literally dissolves all of the cells in the heart that your body, if I were to take that heart and put it into you, uh, would, would reject. So we're talking about muscle fibers and, and all sorts of other types of cells. That are just gone, dissolved, and what's left is this ghostly white model of a heart. It's it's sort of a scaffold. It looks just like the heart because the connective tissue is still there, and that's mostly collagen. And we really don't have a big immune response to collagen. And now what 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 Odd is envisioning is that he will now. So now he's got this heart, and and it's it's been it's completely devoid of any type of cells that you would reject. Now he's going to take the recipient, the person who's going to get a heart, and he takes a sample of their skin, takes these fibroblasts from their skin. No, no deep biopsy, nothing crazy. Takes fibroblasts, uh, takes a skin sample, and there are methods now that can take those skin cells and stimulate them to become stem cells. And we know stem cells, you, the body can, depending on how these stem cells are stimulated, they can become any type of cell in the body from neurons to, 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 to muscle, to cardiac muscle, to fill in the blank, to fat tissue. What he wants to do then is stimulate these stem cells to become cardiac muscle cells and then culture those muscle cells. Now, don't forget, these are really muscle cells from that person who's given that sample, the, the, heart, the, the person who's going to get the heart. So he grows these cells in culture. Then he's going to seed this 
model that he's got. And, and in a sense, implant these, new, these muscle fibers, these muscle cells onto this heart and grow that heart. And now, once this thing is beating and, and, and this, they're, they're working on this right now, then he'll transplant that heart into the recipient. So I was blown away by this. I was like, what are we talking about here? This sounds like science fiction. How long will this take to, to, to we can actually see this? He said within 10 years. That is incredible. All right, last question, Bill, and I'm going to tie this into one of your previous books, Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History. I'm fascinated by that subject. I wanted to ask you a question about this book based on that subject. And those cannibalistic individuals that uh, that you researched for that book, just how valued was the heart in terms of something they might eat of somebody else? Um, I... I, I... Now I'm thinking back. I don't recall that the heart was um, w- was particularly favored by anybody who, you know, if you're in a starvation condition, you know, if you're washed up on an island or um, or or you're being besieged and you wind up eating bodies, it's not going to matter what you eat. You eat everything. I mean, you probably would start with the, um, you, you know, with with muscle. Uh, and, 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 and if you were really starving, it, you'd eat everything, including the organs, like the heart, which I can't imagine is anything but really tough. If you've ever eaten like a, you know, a chicken heart or something like that. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's just very tough, tough tissue. So I can't imagine that that would be the preferred organ. If you were in any type of situation, whether it was a religious ritual or, um, or whether it was, um, starvation, uh, conditions, uh, that, that, that you would, that, that you'd want to eat the heart, but, but you would, if you were starving. Fair enough. Bill Shutt is a zoologist and author, including the bestseller cannibalism, a perfectly natural history. His newest book is titled pump, a natural history of the heart. You can get it now, wherever books are sold. Bill, thank you so much for the time today. And thank you for this very entertaining and informative book. Thanks for having me on Trey. Take care. Join me next time when I speak with editorial cartoonist Joe Lee on Forgiveness, the story of Ava Kaur, survivor of the Auschwitz twin experiments. Learn about one of the most inspirational humans this world has ever seen, whose life is rooted in unthinkable human atrocity. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.